there are some things that, you know, deafness actually gives you that we consider to be deaf gain, things that you benefit from, from being deaf. Like with most cultural minorities, I think that people that are in the hegemonic majority have a lot of work to do educating themselves. It shouldn't be the burden of these communities to educate us. We should take it upon ourselves to seek out information and, and do better. You're listening to Speaking of Language, a podcast recorded at the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. Each week, we explore a topic related to language pedagogy and second language acquisition. This week on Speaking of Language. Dr. Karine Aquino joins us to follow up on her talk, What Everyone Should Know About American Sign Language and American Deaf Culture. We talk about language deprivation in deaf children, the phenomenon of deaf gain, and how hearing folks can help make a more inclusive world for their deaf community members. Welcome to a new episode of Speaking of Language. I'm Angelica Kramer, the director of the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. And I'm Sam Lupowitz, the LRC's media manager. We have Corinne Aquino with us today. Dr. Aquino is an assistant professor of languages, literatures, and linguistics at Syracuse University. She gave a talk as part of our monthly LRC speaker series on what everybody should know about American Sign Language and American Deaf Culture. You can watch her full talk on our YouTube channel, and we are excited to extend our conversation here today. Welcome to Speaking of Language, Corinne. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's our pleasure. Uh, we had a, a great time at your talk, and um, we'd like to get into that a little bit more here on the podcast. But we like to start by asking about our guests' background and path with languages. So when and how did you start learning sign language? Well, um, like many hearing people, I discovered ASL um, as a language that you can study in college. Um, I actually had had a friend, um, well, actually my father's friend whose wife was deaf um, in my childhood. And so she would come to our house from time to time. But I think as a kid, you know, I, I don't know if kids really know how to process those kind of things. Like mm -hmm. I understood that she was using her hands, but she also kind of talked because we were all hearing. So um, I think that I didn't think much of it until later on when I kind of realized, oh, that's what that was, right? Hmm. Um, but I, I was already a linguistics uh, student, um, declared for my undergrad, and I was thinking about going to grad school. And for grad school, we were supposed to kind of choose a language of focus, right? Mm -hmm. Something that we're going to write our papers on and kind of get into. And I kind of looked around at the different options. I was at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, and we had a great linguistics program. And it just so happened that we also had a great ASL program. Unbeknownst to me, it was just kind of a happy accident. So I started taking ASL classes, and I just really fell in love with it. And as a graduate student, I just realized more and more how the training that I had received, which was 100% focused on analyzing spoken languages, didn't work in so many ways for ASL. And I just found myself really puzzled by that, right? Because Linguists love to talk about this idea of human language, like language uh -huh. with a capital L. What does that mean? But I had only ever thought about language in the, you know, auditory mode. Mm. Sure. So, um, so that really opened my mind a lot to what we mean when we talk about language and the human language capacity. Um, and sign languages 
in general, really challenge a lot of the ways that many linguists think about language. Oh, for sure. Yeah, that's interesting. So the film Coda just won Best Picture at the Oscars this year, along with TV shows, commercials, and sports and news broadcasts. ASL is experiencing, as you called it, a pop culture moment. ASL is also one of the few languages nationally that has seen an increase in enrollment since 2016. As you pointed out in your talk, despite this growing popularity, the hearing world really knows little about ASL, its role in deaf culture, its status as a real human language, or the daily frustrations many deaf ASL signers experience as they fight for access and inclusion in the hearing world. So let's take these points one by one. What should everybody know about ASL? Well, um, that's a really good question. I think the first thing is to recognize that ASL, or American Sign Language, is one of many sign languages, right? I think a lot of hearing people have this assumption either that um, sign language is universal mm -hmm. or that um, sign language should be universal, <laughs> right? And so I think a lot of people have a misconception about that, whereas what we're talking about primarily in the American context is American sign language, which is unique from British Sign Language, which is unique from Japanese Sign Language. Mm -hmm. These are all completely different languages. So I think that's probably the most important thing to mm -hmm. know. So what role does American Sign Language play in deaf culture? Um, so language, as you probably have talked with other guests, is often at the center of culture, right? So language connects people in a way um, that not only allows people to have a, um, a bond of solidarity by using the same language, but it's also a way to capture um, historical or cultural or artistic knowledge that's encapsulated within the knowledge of knowing that language. So I would say in many ways, ASL is at the center of deaf culture and deaf identity. Um, and I think that's related to this idea of what does it, what does deaf culture even mean? Right. I, I think that language, knowing a language is what unites many people within the deaf community rather than the concept of deafness on its mm. own. So mm. really cultural, cultural deafness is about linguistic and cultural um, familiarity within a group more than it is about the way the hearing people think about it, which is a diagnosis of hearing loss. You mentioned language with a capital L, right? And that people always think about auditory languages. Can you talk a little bit more about ASL status as a real human language? Sure. So um, ASL basically came on the scene um, in the mid-1800s when the first American School for the Deaf was founded in Hartford, Connecticut. And... Um, that school was the first place where deaf children could go and get a formal education. The people who helped set up that school actually um, were brought from France, from um, the French school for the deaf that was established um, well before that. And so French, deaf French educators brought French sign language to the United States as a tool for pedagogy and 
um, instruction. So these deaf kids from all over the Northeast went to this deaf school and they brought with them various language experience. They might have had um, a home sign situation where they were the only deaf person in their family and to communicate with their family, Mm -hmm. they would kind of make up signs in a very idiosyncratic way Mm. um, to communicate with primarily local family members, or it could have been the exact opposite. Um, They could have been coming from a place like Martha's Vineyard, um, which I'm sure the audience knows where Martha's Vineyard is, but what they might Mm -hmm. not know is that at one point in time, Martha's Vineyard was a center for deaf culture in the United States. And because there was a fairly high incidence of hereditary deafness, a sign language emerged in Martha's Vineyard that was um, used really throughout the the island, the region there. And so kids who came from those communities brought Martha's Vineyard sign language. And so this American deaf school really became this, I guess, melting pot for language and um, kind of cultural emergence. So ASL comes from that context, but more broadly, it's used throughout the U.S. and um, English-speaking parts of Canada. Um, so it's a, a fairly broadly used language. Um, it's also one of the most popular second languages um, in terms of people who are deaf that know a different sign language as their primary mm. sign language, much in the same way that English is a very popular mm. second language for people who speak other languages throughout the word, world. A little bit of a, a lingua franca, you might say. Mm-hmm. You brought up the Martha's Vineyard community um during your talk and i i had i forget when or where i read about that but that's a fascinating and and a, an amazing thing to not know existed until huh. you know whatever my 30s or it's just one of those yeah. things that's not shared widely or taught widely i feel and I, it's so interesting yeah no i totally agree and i i think in a lot of ways like many minoritized groups um they're history and culture often isn't taught in mm-hmm. more mainstream school programs. Mm-hmm. So most people don't know yeah. very much about deaf culture at all at because all. it's yeah. not included in public mm-hmm. school in the United States. Well, you know, and I do have to say, I've been thinking about this a lot, actually, since your talk. Growing up in Germany, the um, secondary educational system is very different in Germany than than what it is here. And there have always been specialized schools for differently abled students. I can't tell you how old I was when I interacted with somebody who was not abled in the same way that I am, which blows my mind when you think about it, you know? And I think you mentioned um, when you were on campus, too, that oftentimes people only start thinking about people who communicate differently once they first encounter somebody who, you know, can't speak, has difficulty hearing. And I think that's a big problem for education and for language classes. But it's it's sad how ignorant we are. <laughs> and I think this kind of goes back to what you were asking about with the movie Coda and how important deaf representation is in in pop culture or in media more generally, because it's that visibility Mm -hmm. that allows hearing people to think about Mm -hmm. what the challenges might be that deaf people face on a daily basis Mm -hmm. in terms of access, in terms of inclusion, in terms of just 
very basic things that we take for granted in a world that's structured for hearing, right? Yes. So um, I think when people see a movie like Coda, it's very eye-opening for them because they've maybe never thought about a deaf family with a hearing daughter, or they've maybe never thought about, you know, um, what that might be like to be the only deaf people in a community and, mm-hmm. and trying to be part of a community, what that looks like. So, uh, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. It's it's not ideal. We were touching on this topic already. Um, are there other sort of daily frustrations that um, deaf ASL signers experience as they fight for access and inclusion in a hearing world? Um, I think there are a lot of different ways that access and inclusion impact deaf lives. Um, one that I mentioned in my talk was this idea that um, it wasn't until just 2020 when the pandemic hit that um, the National Association for the Deaf sued the U.S. government mm-hmm. to provide ASL interpreter, uh, interpreters for um, emergency broadcasts about mm-hmm. this global pandemic. And the National Association of the Deaf won in uh, district court. And so the, you know, the court said that the government had to provide interpreters to, you know, give ASL access to the deaf community in this time of global crisis. Um, And thankfully then, you know, the Biden administration took that a step further and they've been the first administration to hire a full-time set of American Sign Languages Mm -hmm. interpreters who are on staff at the White House for all of their press briefings. Um, so I would say, you know, that is one huge example very recently of, of you know, trying to get access, um, but also even fighting for captioning. I mean, you would mm-hmm. not believe how resistant to captioning hearing people are. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I don't understand this because as a hearing person, I use captioning all the time. Even before <laughs> yeah. I was part of the deaf community, if I watch a show that's in a non-standard English dialect, yeah. you know, from BBC maybe, yep. sometimes mm-hmm. I turn it on. Um, or sometimes if you're in a, a crowded, loud environment, you know, and like at the airport or something and you want to read the captions. But very often, you know, when deaf people ask, you know, oh, we want to have what they call open captioning at at the movie theater, right? So there's closed captioning and open captioning. And open captioning is just, you know, the captioning is there. You don't have to turn it on. It's kind of part of the movie. But usually what happens is deaf people are given these really clunky, terrible glasses Hmm. that they have to put on over their own glasses or whatever, where they can read the captions that are kind of superimposed then on the screen. Oh, wow. Because hearing people don't want to see captions Mm. on the movie that they're paying Mm. to see. So in in Rochester, where I used to live, where there's a big deaf community, Mm -hmm. they have a lot of showings of open captioning where they'll Mm. like advertise and say, this Friday at six o'clock, open Mm. captioning of CODA or whatever movie. Um, But time and time again, I've seen deaf people try to say like, could we just have like regular captioning all the time and and hearing people are really angry about providing <laughs> captioning i don't understand it at all <laughs> so wow. you would think it's a very basic thing to provide right like captions yeah. don't seem like a big ask and yet it's it's huge or even for talks right like when i give talks for an academic community i make it really clear to the people that i'm giving the talk for that there has to be captioning right that mm-hmm. before my video gets posted anywhere it has to be captioned but i would say I don't know, conservative estimate, 75, 80% of academic talks I see have no captioning. Yeah. So that means if you go online and you're a deaf person, you're trying to access information, even mm-hmm. in your own field, 
there's no accessibility because people don't want to take the time to caption their own videos. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah, we have a long ways to go. Absolutely. So you also spoke about ASL's roots in deaf education and about the fact that language deprivation is still a very real problem for deaf children in the U.S. Can you explain that a little more for our listeners? Yes, absolutely. So um, the best way, I think, to explain the concept of language deprivation is to think about how typical acquisition works for hearing children, which is a child is born into a family, regardless of whatever, whatever language that family speaks, a hearing child is born to hearing parents. The minute they come out, those parents are talking to that baby mm -hmm. and that baby has full access to the sounds and the intonations and the phonemes that are coming out of their, their parents' mouths. And mm -hmm. their brain automatically starts connecting the dots and finding patterns and, and learning language. But when a deaf child is born into that environment, um, by the virtue of the fact that they can't hear, if their parents are talking at them, right, not mm -hmm. really to them, but mm -hmm. at them, they're getting either a very degraded signal if they have residual hearing at all, or maybe no signal at all, other than kind of the, the visual mm -hmm. mouth movements, right? Um, but none of the things that we would really consider to be the core of, for example, English vocabulary or um, prosody or phonology or any of those things. Um, the flip side of that is when a deaf baby is born into a deaf signing family, they have the exact same kind of experience that hearing children born to hearing parents have, mm -hmm. which is the minute they come out and their parents are holding them, the parents are signing to them and the child is, is being immersed in a visual language where they can start seeing patterns, seeing mm. hand shapes, understanding mm. prosody, all of these same things that we take for granted in typical language development. Wow. That can happen for deaf children who are born, who are lucky enough, really, to be born with deaf mm. parents and mm. have that immediate access to a full language. That's only conservatively probably less than 10%, maybe 8% of deaf children are born into deaf signing families, which yeah. means more than 90% of deaf children are born into hearing families who are usually woefully uninformed sure. about deaf culture or sign languages. And more than that, I think that what happens is that there's a fear that sets in, right? There's a mm. fear that comes from a hearing-centric view of the world mm. that assumes that having a deaf child is a, is, is a problem, is something to be worried about, is something to be sad about. And so what those parents are thinking many times is like, how do I make this child hear? How mm. do I give them access to spoken language? But what we know is that, you know, cochlear implants or speech therapy, all of these, all of these things, they're great, but they don't substitute for full access to a language from birth, mm. right? And so the kind of thing that gen generally starts to happen because many of these deaf children with hearing families don't have access to full access to a language in those early parts of the years um, is that we see what we call language deprivation. Mm -hmm. And language deprivation is the lack of access to a full language, right? Mm -hmm. And so they don't have the opportunity to build those connections and, and, and all of the things that go along with learning language, right? Um, and it's very, very hard to, to catch up after that, right? 
Um, if those children who are deaf born to hearing families ever get access to sign language at all, it often doesn't happen until school age when they enter a public school system and then they can be provided with you know, interpreters or maybe be in a mainstream classroom with other deaf kids. Um, but, you know, at five years old, that's a really long gap between okay. birth and five to have yeah. access to a full language. So language deprivation results from that kind of a circumstance. And and it's still a real problem in the deaf community, mostly because of um, uninformed or ill-informed um, parents and and honestly providers, right? Doctors, uh, speech therapists, and, mm. and people who also have a very hearing-centric view of of deafness as a deficit rather than as something that is um, actually something to be celebrated as just part of uh-huh. regular, you know, human diversity, right? The only yeah. thing that really is the problem is the fact that we've built a world that is not accessible. It's not really yep. um, the not hearing itself. Yeah. So you touched on this also uh, when you were talking about language deprivation. What has research on ASL taught us about language and language learning? Yeah, that's a great question. So we've learned so many things about language um, acquisition and typically developing language trajectories. Um, But also there's something really special about looking at sign languages because they occur in the visual modality. So the visual modality has affordances, what we call affordances, that are are not necessarily part of the spoken language modality. So one thing that we've we've um, seen in in deaf children is that they learn very quickly if they are exposed to sign language where to look, where to mm. look in order to get the best linguistic signal. So mm. a colleague of mine at the National Technical Institute for the Deaf, Rain Bosworth, who herself is a um, deaf psychologist has looked at infant eye gaze in deaf and hearing children. And what they find is that deaf children who really understand um, sign language, who, you know, from from birth, um, have very specific eye gaze patterns that emerge very early on as the children understand where where to look to understand ASL. Um, We also have seen, uh, for example, that... um, Spatial rotation or understanding of three-dimensional space tends to be better in both deaf and hearing people who know a sign language. So there's some evidence that maybe even learning a sign language even later in life can increase your um, spatial and three-dimensional comprehension, your ability to rotate objects in space, just because you're you're using that system to um, access language, but coming with the language is really a strengthening of other abilities, right? So when you see signing, you have to be able to kind of flip um, what you see as, you know, not thinking of it as the same way that you're seeing your hands. I don't know how to describe this a lot of gesture, Mm -hmm. but right. So like if I'm signing, my right hand is on my right. If you're signing, your right hand is on my left. Yeah. And so I have to be able to flip that signal to understand Right. Uh That uh my dominant and your dominant are actually in opposition to one another rather than assuming that what's on my left is actually Uh, my left. Right. So that's kind of part of the thing that you think of as being a general part of processing a visual language. 
But then that also aids in your ability to do that more generally, right? Your ability mm. to take an object and rotate it 180 degrees or something wow. like this. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So yet another reason for me to learn ASL yes. because I can't yeah. rotate anything in my mind. Especially <laughs> yeah. very challenged here. Yes, this is this is right at the heart of deaf gain as we talked about. Mm. <laughs> so, learning ASL can be a first step for the hearing world to open the door to understanding deaf culture. What else can we do to help disrupt the hegemony of hearingness and make way for a more inclusive and equitable society? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And it's something that we as hearing people should really um, investigate, I think, and, and invest in. I think one of the, the best things um, that I can think of and something that um, I tell my students is to ask deaf people, right? I'm a hearing mm. person, so I can tell you what I think is right. But at the end of the day, it's not, it's not me, right? It's not me who these things need to change for. So I think mm -hmm. asking deaf people, what do you want? What makes your life better? How can we be more inclusive? And, and there are many ways, you know, this whole concept of universal design that's mm -hmm. become very um, kind of catchy in higher mm -hmm. education, um, which is rooted in this idea of accessibility for all, right? Yep. Like making your materials, making your content, making your lessons, um, available in more than one mode, um, have visual things, have, you know, all kinds of ways to present information. And the idea with universal design is that it actually benefits everyone, right? Having more ways of accessing information is better for everyone. Um, and different people benefit from different things. So the more you provide, the more access that you provide to people more generally. But so again, going back to this idea of captioning, even hearing students benefit from captioned videos, right? Especially when you're learning new words like hegemony, right? The first time I use this word <laughs> in my classroom, my students were probably like, what is that word? But if I have it captioned and it's on a PowerPoint where they can see it and hear it, right? Yeah. Like they can link these two modes and it gives mm. them one more thing to connect to, to try to start building that information. So um, captions is such a basic thing, but in addition to that, there's other simple things like, um, for example, you know, think about going to a, a drive up window. Think of how inaccessible that might be for a deaf person to go to a drive up window. Yeah. Right. Um, and so what you've seen a lot of places going toward now is this idea of kind of touch screen uh, ordering systems. Have you seen mm -hmm. these? I, I've seen them mm -hmm. at the airport at like McDonald's. We yeah. have it here at Dunkin Donuts in, the, huh. in our student union building. Um, where you can kind of go up and you can just touch what you want and then it shoots it to the, the mm. person taking your order. And it's just like, it's such an easy thing, right? Rather than mm. me having to go up or drive up and like speak my order. Um, there's a million videos on YouTube of deaf people being discriminated against in drive throughs where people Oof. either think that um, they're being pranked, right? That the person is trying to like drive up and do some kind of a prank or uh, that mm. they're not willing to accommodate them. Like they, they try to take the order and then they say, we can't understand you, like whatever. And it's just a really sad, like simple, stupid thing that could be easily fixed. Right. Um, another one is just more general knowledge of deaf and other disabled communities, right? Just thinking more about the natural diversity of the human experience and 
thinking about those things as not necessarily being a, a deficit, but as being something other, something, you know, maybe better, who knows, right? So as we yeah. just talked about, there are some things that, you know, deafness um, actually gives you that we consider to be deaf gain, things that you benefit from, from being deaf, enhanced, you know, perceptual abilities or things like this. So I think that there's just a lot, uh, like with most cultural minorities, I think that people that are in the hegemonic majority have a lot of work to do educating themselves, right? Um, And it shouldn't be the burden of these communities to educate us. We should take it upon ourselves to seek out information and and do better. Um, But yeah, I mean, taking an ASL class is a great first step, right? Just trying to learn a little bit about the language and the culture that you would get in a first semester of a class it changes a lot of students' lives. I mean, it's kind of one of those things like you don't know what you don't know, right? Yeah. Yeah, very cool. Uh, what other advice would you give to our listeners? That's a, a great start, but uh, where can they start learning about deaf culture and ASL if they don't happen to know someone who is deaf? Yeah, that's a great question. So I get this question a lot, and I also get this question a lot from um, people that are in my classes that maybe have kids or, or mm. who, who want to learn ASL themselves, but they don't necessarily have the time to take a class, right? Um, like a formal class. There are actually a lot of great online resources for people who maybe don't have time to sign up for a formal class. Um, there's one that's run through Gallaudet University, which is the um, one of the only two deaf, uh, deaf universities or colleges in the United States. Um, and it's called ASL Connect, and it's run through Gallaudet, and it basically is a free online interactive ASL lessons um, where you can go and you can see basic vocabulary or um, introductory lessons for free. There's another one um, that I have um, a friend who is deaf, who is one of the people who started it called Sign School. Um, Sign School is another free reference um, if you're if you're using it in a classroom environment, there's a, a fee to sign up to use it for you know larger purposes. But for individuals, you just have to create a profile, and you can you know get started learning at your own pace. Basically, kind of like the idea of a duolingual, right? Um, but obviously based in the visual modality. Another great resource actually for uh, parents who maybe have deaf children who would like to learn more about how to incorporate ASL into their lives. Um, is is a new resource that's run by um, also a colleague and friend of mine um, named Dr. Leah Gear, who is the program coordinator of the American Sign Language and Deaf Studies program at Cal State University Sacramento. And she and her uh, partner have started a new resource for um, parents with deaf kids that's called ASL at Home. And they have um, an Instagram page that you can follow, but it's basically... Um, family-centered ASL curriculum, right? Because the things that you might learn at a community college or at a college are more kind of like fun, conversational, you know, things that you would learn as a second language learner, but they're not really targeted toward the kinds of things that parents who are interested in incorporating ASL into the lives of their um, deaf children might need. That's great. And we will link to all these resources in our show notes. Before we sign off, we would like to ask you to share your favorite word in ASL. 
We'd like you to sign that word, and we'll share the video on social media and link it in our show notes. But we also would like you to explain what that word is. So, what is it? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, I have two signs that kind of come to mind. Uh, The first one, I guess you would probably gloss, um, which is the word for how we translate um, signs into English words, um, would be champ, C-H-A-M-P, champ. Um, And the reason I like the sign champ is because it's kind of like on the left hand, this um, pointer finger, and then you put a crown on a person kind of. So the right hand has this claw, five hand shape, and you put the crown on the person and you say champ, right? Champ. And really champ means something's great or awesome. Mm. So you would see somebody being like, oh, that game yesterday, champ. It was so great. Or that lecture that I just saw about ASL and deaf culture, champ. It was yeah, so great. Yeah, that's what that was. <laughs> it was. Right? Yeah. It was very champ. Cute. So I think that's a really cute one because it's like, ooh, champ. Uh-huh. Um, and then the other one that I really like and I think is uh, pertinent to the conversation we've been having is um, what would be glossed as deaf bing, B-I-N-G or P-I-N-G, deaf bing, which means uh, deaf tendencies, right? The, the, the ways of being deaf that are like, oh, yes, that is a thing that deaf people do. So deaf bing, you sign the word deaf, deaf, and then bing, which is also the sign for tend or tendency, which is um, you, this is called the eight hand shape, which is you have your uh, middle finger extended and the rest of your fingers up and you touch the center of your chest and then you move it away in a, um, away from your body fashion. So deaf, which is tap, tap with your chin and your ear and your pointer finger, and then bing. Deaf thing. That's awesome. Fantastic. Well, this was a treat. Thank you so much for speaking of language with us, Corrine. It was wonderful to be here. Thank you so much. Next week, we are excited to introduce a new LRC team member. Emma Britton is the new Learning Initiatives Coordinator here. Tune in to hear more about Emma and the plans we have for supporting language students and faculty. Until then... Auf Wiedersehen und auf Wiederhören. The Language Resource Center is located on the ground floor of Stimson Hall on Cornell's main campus in Ithaca, New York. Check us out on the web at lrc.cornell.edu. Or follow Cornell LRC on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Speaking of Language is produced by Angelica Kramer and Sam Lupowitz. Recorded by Sam Lupowitz. Original music by Sam Lupowitz, Dan Gable, and Joe Gibson. Thanks also to the College of Arts and Sciences at Cornell University. As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Sciences or any other official entity of Cornell University. We thank our listeners, and do stay tuned for our next episode.